We know that we've had Chinese police stations operating within Canada. It took forever for the government to act on them and to even go shut them down. And meanwhile, when we look over to the U.S., they're looking at prosecuting people who are setting up these police stations. So why aren't we doing that in Canada? We absolutely should be. It's concerning that our national sovereignty is something that is just not seen with seriousness at all under this prime minister. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, you know, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, in in the world, especially in Canada, to access reliable sources of news. We live in a world where, you know, President Trump was famously removed from Twitter. Uh, recently, Dr. Jordan Peterson had an episode of his of his podcast, uh, you know, taken down from YouTube because uh, it had certain LGBTQ content that was unacceptable. And most recently, uh, the premier of our province, who represents about four and a half million people, uh, she was uh, she was restricted from posting anything on Facebook. Well, one of the reliable sources of truth in news uh, in this country is True North. And uh, we had the pleasure uh, last year of having Andrew Lawton, one of the reporters on our show, to talk about his book and his outstanding podcast. And today we have the pleasure of meeting uh, uh, someone else from True North. And uh, her name is uh, Rachel Emanuel. She's the Edmonton correspondent for True North. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, uh, so uh, what we what we do on our show, Rachel, is we have uh, a few quotations to frame our discussion, and then uh, I'm going to get going. We're going to talk some politics today, which is one of our favorite uh, things to talk about on this show. Um, these have been uh, these quotations are selected somewhat in your in your honor because of who and what you report on. The first one is from our uh, our, our prime minister, who is becoming increasingly notorious by the day, as you know. Uh, he was quoted as saying this. I think this this quotation is somewhat ironic. He said, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone that I stand firmly against the politics of division, the politics of fear, the politics of intolerance or hateful rhetoric. If we allow politicians to succeed by scaring people, we don't actually end up any safer. Fear doesn't make us safer. It makes us weaker. Uh, the second one is from his uh, main opponent and critic nowadays, Pierre Polivier, who uh, said that any politician promising not to raise taxes is like a vampire promising to become a vegetarian. And finally, from someone a bit older than those two, Voltaire, who once uh, posed this question, is politics nothing other than the art of deliberately lying? Well, who do we have on the show today? Well, Rachel Emanuel, she is a seasoned political reporter who has covered government institutions from a variety of levels. She's a Carleton University journalism graduate. Uh, she was a multimedia reporter for three local Niagara newspapers, and her work has been published in the Toronto Star. Uh, Rachel was the inaugural recipient of the Political Matters Internship, placing her at the Global Mail's Parliamentary Bureau. And uh, she has spent three years covering the federal government for iPolitics, and most recently, she is a correspondent for True North, based in Edmonton. So Rachel, uh, right off the bat, just to maybe get get, get to know you a little bit better, what what uh, what sparked your interest or inspired you to become a journalist? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It actually started when I was in high school. I've always been very interested in writing, even when I was in elementary school. I struggled a lot in some subjects like math and science, but really shone in more English and literature-based courses. So I always knew I was going to do something in writing. And when I was in grade 12, I found that I had a big interest in politics suddenly. And I was writing a lot about politics. At that time, everyone had to decide how they were going to spend the rest of their life. Very anxious time being 18 and deciding what the next steps are. So I decided I wanted to pursue a journalism degree, specifically in political journalism, which sort of obviously led me up to Ottawa, the capital. I thought that would be a perfect place to blend both of my interests, and certainly it proved to be so. Are you originally from Ontario? Yes, I'm originally from the Niagara region. So uh, I actually, I was just out there. It's beautiful, uh, that that part of the country. Um, but coming, I'm interested in getting your impressions of, you know, coming out to Alberta. You've been in Alberta for, for a while now. Uh, was it a culture shock, uh, you know, going from, you know, coming from Ontario to Alberta? And and if so, in, in, in what ways? What were your, what were your impressions of, of Alberta and, and, you know, sort of arriving here as a young reporter? I think being in Ontario and being a conservative, we kind of always laud Alberta as this conservative paradise. So I had very high hopes and expectations coming here. Initially, I did land in Edmonton, as you mentioned, certainly not really the conservative paradise I was looking for. I actually have just recently moved to Calgary. So I'm in Calgary now. And in between that, I spent a little bit of time in Red Deer. So already in just over the year that I've lived here, I've gotten a pretty good taste for the province and the different types of cities and people that live within it. So there is some things I really enjoy. I think definitely people here are just more conservative. I find in social circles, you can speak your mind a little bit more freely. And certainly after having graduated from Carleton University and after having spent four years really curtailing my tongue and feeling like I couldn't say what I wanted to say or speak my mind without being offensive or offensive or labeled as a conservative, which I was nonetheless... I had to almost unlearn that and learn to be able to speak freely and to be so unbridled once again. People here are also just a lot nicer. They're a lot friendlier. I think the customer service is a lot better here. We talk a lot about Southern hospitality, and I feel like we get that here in Alberta. doesn't matter what city I'm in, if I'm in Edmonton or if I'm Calgary, if I go out for dinner, the servers just typically seem to be more friendly and open and warm and welcoming than somewhere in Ontario. Just so, you know, generally speaking, of course. One of the things that I didn't really like is the lack of fresh water to go swimming. I love swimming. I grew up in Niagara. I grew up right in between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Pretty much a beach was 20 minutes in any direction. And so I found that a little bit tricky since I've been here. I know people here in Calgary like to take advantage of the Bow River. So I've been doing that a little bit, but it is definitely very cold. So if your audience has any suggestions of good places to go swimming near Calgary, please feel free to let me know. And I'm certainly not above swimming in rivers. So that's something that I have missed out a little bit. I obviously love not having a provincial sales tax. It's nice to go shopping or to go and buy things. And as a woman, often when you're shopping at the store, you're kind of adding up in your head. Okay, what's the damage here? What's this going to cost at the end of it? And then in Ontario, it always ends up being way more than you expected once they add all the taxes onto it. And here it's actually quite a bit closer to what you expect the price to be with just a little bit of the federal tax, of course, added on to things. So there's definitely been a lot of highs. Overall, my experience has been very positive. I would say that this past winter was very long. I didn't love it. So I'm hoping that people told me it was unseasonably bad. I don't know if I should believe them. I'm hoping that next winter isn't as bad. 
or maybe I'll just have to take up some sort of winter sport and learn to enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah. Or maybe take a winter vacation to someplace warmer. That's sort of an Alberta tradition. My wife is from Ontario. She would certainly agree with you about the lake. She grew up near Lake Superior. And our, our lakes don't rate uh, with uh, with Ontario's, that's for sure. But you're right, those Rocky Mountains are are, are pretty special. So uh, welcome to Alberta. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, some of your recent uh, publications, which I think are very important uh, to Albertans and, and to the Alberta political scene. But before I go there, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the announcement, the recent announcement about these huge layoffs at CTV, because it sort of hits in, right in the, at the core of what's going on with, you know, uh, you know, companies like 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 True North and Rebel and others who are sort of carving out an, an ever growing space in the in the, in in public media and are, are really starting to make inroads against this sort of uh, blob of, of publicly funded media that uh, we found out during COVID and subsequently have been feeding us a lot of, a lot of rot. So what's your take on those, uh, on those uh, CTV layoffs? Was there, were there sort of uh, cheers and a hoo-hoo uh, down at True North about that? Or what, what's your take on that? I wasn't surprised to see the CTV news layoffs. I was maybe surprised to see a couple of bigger names included in those. That of course is Joyce Napier and Glenn McGregor. I actually worked with both of them up in Ottawa. Joyce is one of the loveliest people I've ever met. She was so welcoming to me. Even when I first started on the Hill, I did feel quite sad to see her name on there. Glenn was very respectful to me when I worked in mainstream media. We don't really talk anymore since I joined independent media, but I was surprised to see their names included. I'm personally probably not going to cheer the specifics of individual people losing their jobs. Although I do think in this case is some of the bigger names, they'll end up on their feet. They'll get a job, probably making a lot more money, doing something a lot easier after all those years in journalism and having built up big names for themselves within the Canadian political ecosystem. That being said, ultimately, I think this is the direction that things are headed in. We're going to continue to see these layoffs in mainstream media. And I think it's really interesting that this is happening Despite all the government subsidies and all the federal money they're receiving, they still can't manage to keep themselves afloat. So clearly Canadians aren't really interested in this content. They don't want to pay for it. We know Canadians are less and less tuning into mainstream media outlets. And I think this is the direction that things are going to continue in. And I think that it's necessary. I don't believe that the government should be subsidizing media. And I think that as we see these subsidies dissipate, hopefully eventually we have a conservative government that removes them entirely. We're going to see who's left standing at the end of the day. And I think it will create a level playing field for all media in the system. It's it's kind of an unsustainable model, isn't it? It's turning out to be that, this idea that you can have a publicly funded media that just just puts out, uh, you know, government messaging and doesn't really create stories and content that people are interested in, or more importantly, that they trust. I, I, I personally would be quite in support of a law that would prohibit government sponsorship of mass media. Would you would you agree with that or do you think that's going too far? No, I would absolutely agree with that. I have no issue with that whatsoever. I do not agree with the government subsidizing media. You know, media is so critical of every single industry. We cover industries, we write about what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right, and if they're sexist within the industries and all these things. And yet they haven't figured out a way to keep themselves afloat. So it is really interesting. It seems a bit hypocritical. You know, we're constantly criticizing and judging all these other sectors but aren't very reflective when it comes to our own sector. And obviously it can be done. 
Because when we look at independent media, well, we're all surviving without a dime of government money. So you should be able to do it too, or you should maybe pack up and go do something else. Right. And and you do produce really, really top-notch uh, content on True North. Anybody who hasn't done so should 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 really check it out. Um, I, I've, I've been reading a lot of your material for over the past year or so. And I know you're quite, you, you follow the Alberta scene quite closely. I'm interested to get your take on um, the situation that recently happened with the premier. Uh, she's been, since being, uh, being elected um, at the end of May, uh, she's, she's become increasingly outspoken about the sort of sovereignty, the, the sovereignist uh, approach to politics in Alberta. And um in a number on a number of different fronts that were that you've written about and I want to talk about. But uh I, I'm interested in getting your take on this recent uh Facebook furor where uh she was restricted from apparently for four days, she was banned from posting anything on Facebook. Uh it seems like we have uh a, a, we obviously we have a number of premiers <laughs> in Alberta, some of whom post controversial things. Uh, for example, the premier of New Brunswick. Uh, why do you think she was targeted like this? So it's interesting. I don't know that she was in fact banned from Facebook. What looked like might have happened is one of the administrators on her account was banned from using Facebook because they were administrators across so many accounts. And it looks like that maybe this administrator tried to log in to post something on Danielle Smith's account and their individual account was restricted. So it appeared that the premier's whole account was restricted. Now I'm saying that because a bunch of journalists have contacted Meta. Of course, that's the company that owns Facebook. And Meta said, no, Danielle Smith's account was never restricted or banned or taken offline. It was just this one administrator who was operating on her account that was actually banned from posting on Facebook. And then after that was revealed, the premier published on Twitter that she was back on Facebook and included a screenshot of a post from Facebook that had initially said she was banned. And the post said, this user is temporarily unable to access Facebook for security reasons, something along those lines. So I did reach out to the premier's office to ask for clarification and say, so were you ever banned? And they simply directed me to the premier's latest uh, Twitter post, which I just said what that was. So I'm not sure that she was ever actually banned from Facebook. I think the premier's office thought they were banned from Facebook, but I think maybe it was just this one administrator that was actually unable to use their account. But, you know, it can be hard to get answers from politicians when they don't really want to explain what's going on. Likewise, it can be hard to get straight answers from these mass corporations and social media companies. So that is the best of the situation that I'm aware of right now. I don't think anyone was surprised when Danielle Smith was banned, because it seems pretty on par with what's going on on social media these days. That to be said, I don't know if that's actually the full truth of what happened. The social media has become a very, very important vehicle within news reporting, though, hasn't it? I, it's sort of metaphorically almost like the new paper boy. It used to be that you'd have paper boys and paper girls would go and deliver the newspapers to people's uh, homes and businesses. And now, it's social media that sort of takes the content, uh, uh, you know, to to people's, uh, you know, accounts, and 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 people are using more and more. Uh, I'm looking at at some of the data. More and more people are accessing social their news through social media. So this type of blip, whether it's a blip or an actual strike, it certainly isn't unique. I mentioned some of the other ones off the top of the show, but it really sort of shows the danger. Of, of placing so much power in the hands of these uh, social media giants that are the distributors of news, doesn't it? 
A hundred percent. And you know, Facebook is one of the worst platforms for anybody who's trying to promote political content in recent years. They've just made it very difficult. The algorithms don't really promote political content. I often have found that my own personal Facebook account or my my public Facebook account is being throttled when I post something that is about politics because I just noticed it hardly seems to get any views or any traction online, whereas my Twitter account does quite well and I've been able to grow that quite successfully for myself. I haven't seen that same growth translate onto Facebook. And so, you know, it's kind of important to be cognizant of these things. I think it's so excellent for conservatives and just for truth and for the public in general that we have Elon Musk, who now owns Twitter and has really decided that he's going to change the way that that's branded and to make sure that there's equal voices on Twitter and that censorship is no longer reigning. There's still quite a bit of work to be done, but I think that's a very positive thing for the movement as a whole. And when we talk about social media kind of becoming that new public square, I would absolutely agree, and I am very grateful for social media and the ways that it can uncover truth that government would love to hide. For example, during the Freedom Convoy, if we didn't have places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to be quickly publishing these videos of what was going on and what the streets of the Freedom Convoy in downtown Ottawa looked like at the time, all we would have had to rely on was the mainstream media narrative, and we know that they did not accurately portray the Freedom Convoy. So social media is a very useful tool. On the other side of things, you have millions of people who have anonymous accounts who act in these anonymous accounts in ways that they would never actually act in real life. And so that can be a little bit frustrating sometimes is just seeing some of the really gross ways that people present themselves and some of the uniquely disgusting things they'll say online that they would never say to your face. So it's sort of a two-side point there. Yeah, that's very true, unfortunately. Um, Well, let's talk about some of the pieces that you've published. There's one that you published uh, in June. Uh, about asking, will there be a public inquiry? And this is in the context of, of course, David Johnston finally, at long last, almost exhaustingly <laughs> resigning as the uh, tr- as the Trudeau government's controversial special rapporteur. Uh, most of us don't really even understand what a rapporteur is, uh, but uh, it's, it sounds like a Disney movie about a rat. But uh, but this was about Chinese election interference, and uh, and finally he resigned. Um, Can you describe for us what's important about that? Why should his resignation uh, be important to to Canadians? So David Johnson's resignation is important. It should have come weeks before it did. He was never seen as somebody who was able to do the job independently. And as a nonpartisan, we know that he has a history of a relationship with the Trudeau family. The ski buddy or something, right? Yes, him and Justin (laughs) Trudeau had actually gone skiing together. So immediately upon his appointment, there was questions of whether he would be able to do the job independently. And he was never really able to escape those questions and those doubts. Then we know he produced a report and he did not recommend a public inquiry, even when the three opposition parties within government had on three occasions voted to proceed with an inquiry. So it didn't seem like he was going to step down. He kept defending his name. He kept defending himself and saying that he was not partisan and that he was able to do this job. I think it took him a little bit too long to realize that the story had become completely about him. The story was, of course, about election interference and whether this is something that we needed to investigate and be concerned about. But we just started talking about David Johnston all the time. So eventually, I think he realized that he had become the story, that Canadians didn't trust him, that the opposition parties didn't trust him. And so he did make the right decision to step down. And it looks like we are going to proceed with that independent inquiry that we know the opposition parties have been calling for now. This is sort of a, a familiar pattern with our prime minister, isn't it? Where 
uh, he he seems to to bring somebody or or cause somebody to come in to solve a problem, whether it's one of his cabinet ministers or a special rapporteur or someone else. And uh, they seem to to give him shade and uh, in this case, take a bullet uh, for him and and he walks off scot-free. And we seem to be having the same thing unfolding right now with uh, Minister Mendocino in Ottawa. Uh, they're calling for his head. Uh, why do you think this is such a familiar pattern with uh, with our with our much maligned prime minister? To be fair, I think this is a very common thing in politics. Often when there's a screw up in government, they quickly look for somebody else to take the bullet so that the leader doesn't have to take the bullet, you know, protect the leader and their image at all costs. And if you can have someone resign and sort of put the blame on that person, we saw that a little bit with Gerald Butts during the SNC-Lavalin right. scandal. You know, he resigned and was sort of shift the controversy and the blame for that was shifted onto him and the prime minister was able to skip off. So it is something that we see a lot in politics. I think what we're noticing with the Trudeau government right now is just a heightened number of scandals. It seems like scandal after scandal after scandal. But I would say something that's interesting and unique to this government is in recent days, it just seems like there can be scandals and and nobody resigns. You right. know, we've had a couple instances where liberal cabinet ministers have been found guilty of awarding a contract to someone they were friends with, or maybe even someone who was part of their family. We had that recently with Mary Ng. She had awarded a contract right. to a company yeah. where one of her friends worked mm -hmm. and she never resigned. This is just something that we wouldn't have seen 10 years ago, 10 years ago, you understood this was something to be ashamed of. And now you had to see yourself out the door for the sake of the government and because you were no longer a credible politician. But that standard has really changed under the prime minister. And I think that it's a bad thing for Canadian politics. I think it's a bad thing for democracy as a whole that we have removed those standards of what you need to do and what you need to be in order to be somebody who is an elected office. The uh, This concept of a public inquiry is really crucial because um, it will it will carry with it the force of law, and the recommendations um, could very well include uh, prosecution of certain people based on their decision making, their faulty decision making. Do you think that's part of the resistance to the public inquiry, at least within the Liberal caucus? You know what? It very well could be because we know that Trudeau is so soft on China in ways that are just really baffling and concerning. For example, we know that we've had Chinese police stations operating within Canada. It took forever for the government to act on them and to even go shut them down. And meanwhile, when we look over to the U.S., they're looking at prosecuting people who are setting up these police stations. So why aren't we doing that in Canada? We absolutely should be. It's concerning that our national sovereignty is something that is just not seen with seriousness at all under this prime minister. Right. And and uh, you 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 talked about some of the sort of liberal corruption. It runs it runs pretty deeply. Uh, I I noticed uh, you know today I I noticed that there were reports that uh, even the governor general is a former uh, or was involved with the with the uh, Trudeau Foundation. Uh, so uh, it seems that that the that the tentacles of liberal corruption are very very long and and run very deep, uh, which as you as you rightly point out should be of of great concern to all Canadians. Um, turning back to the Alberta scene, which is your your main role, what you cover. Um, you wrote a piece uh, earlier in, in June about uh, about Premier Smith announcing an arson investigation. And there's a lot of controversy in the country and actually in the United States too now because of all the smoke uh, they're getting about these fires. And uh, in fact, there are confirmed reports that a lot of these fires are being deliberately set 
what, what is your what is your take on that, and why is it important uh, in your mind that uh, that the Premier of Alberta has announced that she's actually going to conduct an investigation into who's starting these fires? Yeah, this is one of those really interesting stories where you see people kind of dig their heels in depending on what side they fall on. You know, one side is saying, oh, these fires are all the cause of climate change. And for anyone to say otherwise shows that they are a science denier. And on the other side, we have people who are saying, no, there's something amiss here. The fire started too early. This isn't our usual fire season. And there were so many of them. And so this is something really to look into. I think it's a good thing that the premier announced that they're going to be having these arson investigations. I know that she's planning on bringing in people from out of the province. I'm a little bit curious about what that means. Does it just mean we don't have adequate arson investigators within the province? She's bringing in the heavy hitters. I'm not sure. I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask her at the first opportunity. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with investigating these incidences. And as you mentioned, we have heard reports of suspected arson. We know that even one of the counties where there were so many fires ongoing said that a lot of fires were being started. So I think it's important that this is being looked into. And I'm really excited and curious to find out the results of what's happened here, because it just was an unusual fire season. This was only my second summer in Alberta, but obviously I talked to a lot of people and people were very concerned about what was going on and why there were so many fires so much earlier that the time when the fire started was actually usually when the province would be undergoing fire training for firefighters because it was seen as a pretty safe time to maybe light some fires and not have to worry about them, you know, taking off. And obviously that wasn't the case this year in May. So I am curious to see what the investigation will bring, but I don't have a ton of further thoughts on it at this point. There's a, there's a great uh, Michael Crichton novel you might've read called state of fear is written in the late nineties. And the, the theme of the book, the plot of the book is that uh, there are, there are climate zealots, who are setting off volcanoes and explosions and all kinds of things in order to to frighten people into believing in you know that that this climate change is is a serious existential existential crisis is sort of along the lines of an Al Gore documentary uh there are people who are saying that now they're alleging that now that that it may be that given what uh, Mr Singh and Mr Trudeau are saying publicly indeed in parliament that uh, that you know climate change is is the is the new COVID, and we we're going to have to you know lock everybody down to save us from the sun monster. In that context, some people are even suggesting that these fires are being deliberately set in order to to sort of fuel, pardon the pun, climate change hysteria. Uh, do you think that's that's uh, orbiting orbiting a false planet? Uh, that that that's sort of uh, uh, you know fake news, or what's your take on that? I think the fact that we're having this conversation and I've seen those comments online just speaks to how betrayed people feel by their government and how hurt they feel after those years of COVID. Of course, we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, people began saying the next thing that we're going to see is climate lockdowns. We're going to see the government lock us in our homes so that we reduce our emissions. And, you know, we have seen a liberal government that is so focused on their climate agenda. Canadians are really suffering right now. There's a crazy cost of living crisis ongoing. People don't know where to live. There's housing crisis across the nation. We're just out of houses altogether. Healthcare is a bit of a disaster. All across the board, you know, crime is just through the roof. And so there's so many issues ongoing in Canadian society right now. And it seems like the only thing the Liberal government really cares about is their own climate agenda. And I think the fact that we're hearing those comments from people speaks to how traumatized Canadians are 
following two and a half years of government lockdowns throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's concerning that we've reached a point where Canadians have so lost trust in their government institutions. And I think it also, you know, speaks to the need for a change in government. Unfortunately, we've sort of talked about some of the recent scandals plaguing the Liberal government. But we know that the NDP are just determined to prop them up right now. And so unfortunately, even while I think recent polls showed something like 80% of Canadians would like to see a change in government, that's not going to happen until the NDP sort of, you know, grow a pair and decides to stop propping up the civil government and, and let us have an election. Right. There's, uh, there's certainly been some doubling down by this federal government on their climate agenda. As you've said, uh, we have another climate tax coming in. Uh, uh, in July and and also uh, recently, uh, they've said that that they're going to go ahead and actually table a bill on what has become known as just in transition, uh, which Albertans regard as unjust transition. But the Premier of Alberta has stood up to this, and she's even uh, in a recent radio interview. I heard her say that uh, she's not talking about uh, separating, but she's talking about Alberta sovereignty and independence, and that. Uh, that 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 she's not going to stand for this. She's very serious about protecting Alberta from this sort of federal overreach and imposition of this climate agenda to interfere with Alberta's energy industry. And she's recently uh, reached an agreement with uh, with Saskatchewan and Manitoba to open up this Hudson Bay corridor. Do you see these as as promising signs that maybe uh, we can we could escape or at least temporarily avoid? Uh, this 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 you know federal government encroachment and enforcement of their climate agenda. So something that I've learned about being in Alberta is that Albertans love to talk about separation, and it's certainly something that's very keen for a lot of the conservative Albertans that I know. I think it is a really interesting conversation, but a number of things need to happen before it's on the table in a serious and tangible way. One of those things being this port. Of course, Alberta needs access to Tidewater to be able to ship their oils, and that's something that I know Premier Smith has been working on. I thought it was interesting earlier in the year when the Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson said she wasn't really interested in it seems like they've made some progress on that file since then and i think it is very promising this is something that alberta needs to get done just for its own economy and also if they even want to ever talk about separation which i could i know not a lot of albertans are super keen on that right now but who's to say what would happen down the line so i think that's very promising and obviously we have a close ally in saskatchewan premier scott mo you know very like-minded very conservative he's a strong premier right. and so we've seen him sort of join with smith and say they're gonna have this coalition to maybe fight against some of the Trudeau government's energy policies. Unfortunately, I don't think that we have a very favorable audience in the Supreme Court of Canada right now. That's proven to be an issue time and time again. So we'll see what happens. It's tough to say. I think we might even see another carbon tax challenge from Premier Smith. I did have the opportunity to ask her about this during the recent election campaign. And she said, you know, we could look at a different issue, which is that Quebec is paying less in the federal carbon tax than the rest of Canada. And the tax should be even among all of Canada. So I think that there's a couple things up their sleeve. I think there is promising the fact that the Supreme Court of Canada seems so one-sided in favor of the federal government is troubling. But at the end of the day, all these initiatives, I think are very promising and they're moving us in the right direction. Yeah, and peculiarly, we just lost, uh, we just happened to lose one of the only two Supreme, uh, Alberta, uh, Albertan uh, Supreme Court of Canada justices uh, over a scandal. So uh, that's that's a, that's not good news uh, for Alberta in terms of any case going before the Supreme Court. 
Uh, coming back to the election, the recent election we had in Alberta, you, you've written about this. Uh, you wrote a piece called uh, Official Election Results uh, Solidifies NDP Victory in Two Tight Writings and uh, Shows a Drop in Voter Turnout. Um, what is your overall impression uh, or, or what did what did we learn from the Alberta election? Is this, uh, obviously we got a, a UCP majority, uh, but uh, by the same token, the NDP seemed to be in full control now of Edmonton. We lost our only our only, uh, I shouldn't say we, the UCP lost their only uh, a member in, in Edmonton. And there were some, let's call them COVID villains who lost their seats. People like uh, like Copping and Chandra and of course Maydew. Um, what's your overall take or what's your, what's, your, uh, what's your retrospection on the Alberta election? What did we learn about the political scene from that election? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot to unpack here. Uh, something I've heard a lot from my viewers and from my readers is that if there was different candidates and some of the ridings that lost, like let's say Tyler Shandra had been replaced by another candidate, people were not a big fan of him. Obviously, he was the health minister during COVID. You know, people weren't a big fan of Whitney Isaac, who was sort of seen as a Kenny loyalist. She lost her seat in Calgary Glenmore. A lot of my audience said if we had had different candidates, they would have won. But conservatives in those ridings didn't really feel the need to go and vote for them because those candidates simply didn't excite them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the situation is the same over in, I believe that was Edmonton South or Southwest, where Casey Maddu lost because he was Danielle Smith's deputy premier. So he was really given a second opportunity to prove himself. And I think a lot of people really liked him and were happy with that appointment. But it's just the Edmonton the NDP has such a stronghold in Edmonton and it is very difficult for the UCP to win seats there. So, and you know, when it's a smaller majority government, which it was in this case, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to hold on to any seats or pick up any seats within Edmonton, which was obviously the case this time around. When we look at the fact that the voter turnout was lower than it was in 2019, it's not super surprising considering that 2019 was record numbers. I believe 2019 saw the highest turnout since 1971. So it would have been pretty surprising if we had surpassed those numbers. And I think it speaks to the fact that people were a little bit unsure about Danielle Smith. The UCP won and the formed government and for anyone to say that it was a loss because they lost so many seats is you know, they're kind of lying. They form government. Whoever forms government is the winner at the end of the day. That is what is most important here. But people didn't seem super excited to come out and vote for Danielle Smith. And I think a lot of the NDP's attacks against Smith were very effective, especially at the beginning of the campaign. The UCP seemed to really not have found their footing and they spent so much time on the defense. Every single day you spend on the defense is the day of a campaign that's lost. Because instead of being out there and getting your message out, you're defending attack ads from the opposition. And that's what we saw throughout the main portion of the first part of the campaign. Of course, everyone knows that Daniel Smith had a really strong debate performance. And I think that's what solidified the UCP's victory. But people that I know within the party were afraid during the campaign, for sure. It was super close at some points. They didn't know if they were going to win. I think campaigns really matter. We saw that this time around. We saw that Danielle Smith's performance in the debate and practice and effort she spent preparing for that was really important. But it was certainly very close. You know, I'm interested to see what happens over the next four years. Now, Danielle Smith has a majority government that she's won. She didn't just inherit it because she won the leadership race. She really has time now and ability to do what she wants with this government and to prove herself to Albertans. So she has, you know, she has now the opportunity to set herself up for a much more successful win four years from now. And at that point, 
people will have seen her record and know who she is and they'll be able to vote on that as opposed to these attack ads and this unsurety. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen over the next four years for sure. She certainly is a very smart person and tremendously skilled politician. I think she really showed that during the during the campaign. Um, I, but I read a recent piece in the Winnipeg Free Press, which of course we have to take with a grain of salt, uh, that which presented the theory that this might be the last ever conservative government in Alberta because the way things are trending, that that uh, you know the sort of uh, socialist leftist tide is rising in Alberta. Um, I I don't see that as being the trend that living here. Would would you agree with that with that view, or would you say that that depends a lot on, as you say, what Daniel Smith does with the next four years? I don't really see that as a trend either. Perhaps I'm just a little bit naive. I think one of the reasons the NDP did so well this time around is because people really weren't sure of Danielle Smith. And we do know that a lot of progressive conservatives did stay home and they didn't support her. That That is true. That's not just a rumor that the NDP made up. There were certainly some progressives who didn't want to cast their vote for Danielle Smith this year. Another thing that we have to consider is just the flood of interprovincial immigration that we're seeing right now. So many people are moving to Alberta from the rest of Canada because they've just been priced out of the neighborhoods that they grew up in and they want to be able to own a home and they know that's never going to be reality for them in the GTA or in Vancouver. So it is another factor to consider. You would hope that people who are moving here are a little bit more conservative and know what they're getting with this province and are coming here maybe because they like Jason Kenney formerly or now Danielle Smith as premier and they recognize that conservative policies are actually what's contributing to the lower cost of living so that is something to consider but I don't think that this is the last opportunity to ever ever have a conservative government I think that what she does what Danielle Smith does over the next four years is really going to matter especially if she can fix things like the crisis that we're seeing in healthcare and increase some of the issues that we're seeing on affordability, that'll really play well for her over the next four years. Right. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit to kind of a hot button issue. Um, and that is uh, uh, the, the whole LGBTQ plus situation that's going on. Um, and you wrote a piece about this. Uh, Calgary City Council amends a bylaw to restrict pro-life uh, material. Uh, so th- this is in the context in Calgary of uh, you know, city council that has passed a bylaw making it essentially criminal for uh, people to go out and and protest within 100 meters of a drag queen story hour event. And we've had a Calgary pastor and a 17-year-old teenager who have been arrested and jailed for this. Uh, what are you seeing with what's going on with Calgary City Council? Have what seems to be a, an incredibly unpopular mayor, and and then we have what appears to be sort of a uh, a flip-flop on this uh, pro-life material bylaw. What are you seeing what's, with what's going on with uh, with Calgary City Council? It is really baffling to me that we have what seems to be perhaps the most woke city council in all of Canada here in Alberta. That, of course, being in Calgary, some of the things that they have passed, first of all, with this restriction so that those protesting drag queen story hours can't come within a hundred meters of a building where that event is taking place. And now with their restriction on pro-life material, specifically this new amendment to an existing bylaw 
would give individuals who hand out images of aborted babies fines of $1,000 unless those images are first hidden within an opaque envelope. You also have to include your name and address on the images with one of the city councilors saying that they were too offensive for people to see and people just couldn't stomach handing stomach seeing those images. So it is just bizarre to me that we've ended up with such a radically progressive city council. I think coming up, you know, I believe the election for city council is going to be in about two years. Conservatives really need to get themselves organized and figure out who their candidates are going to be in the race if they want to have a chance at shaking things up. But it's definitely a very progressive city council. They even tried to cancel the fireworks for Canada Day, calling them like racist and saying that not all ethnicities would agree with them. And then they threw in a bunch of other reasons as to why they were being canceled. But, you know, there was so much outrage there that we did see them eventually overturn that decision. But of course, that decision should never have been made in the first place. Totally inappropriate to cancel Canada Day fireworks. Let us celebrate Canada Day. Stop trying to steal our national heritage from us. This is something we're seeing again and again on the left. They want us to have no pride in our identity or in our national heritage. And it's really shameful. So of course, it was a good thing that they removed that decision and reversed it. We are going to have the fireworks now. But it was ridiculous that it ever even had to be a conversation in the first place. So this is definitely somewhere conservatives need to focus their efforts over the next couple of years and ensure that we see a change in city council at the next municipal election. It, it was very encouraging, though, to see the way that that petition came together so quickly and that so many people were were prepared to get involved uh, in order to bring back that fireworks display. And it certainly shows some promise that the type of uh, conservative organization that could change the face of city council is possible. So that's that maybe a silver lining on that cloud. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I think it speaks to some of the smart conservative organizers that we do have within the city. I believe it was a group called Common Sense Calgary that put forward that initiative. And I know there's also a Common Sense Edmonton sister, and they do good work. So hopefully we can elevate their profile a little bit. Excellent. Um, uh, You've also uh, talked a lot about sort of law and order or or the loss of it, the degeneration of it in our country. One story you covered uh, was this full parole that was granted to an Edmonton man convicted of murdering his his pregnant wife? Um, uh, and part of the of of, of the, I, I, what I got from reading that piece was you're trying to shed some a spotlight on what's going on, uh, sort of uh, right right in front of our eyes with the Canadian criminal justice system. Uh, so what is happening, and and why are you concerned about it? The Canadian criminal justice system has become a little bit of a joke. We are seeing repeat violent offenders being let out onto the street time and time again to cause harm to Canadian citizens who are just trying to get to work. And in Vancouver and now in Calgary, it's the, it's the same small number of repeat offenders who are committing most of these crimes and they are consistently let out on bail. So this is a huge problem in all of Canada. It's also a problem in the GTA. Our federal government is not taking this seriously. We need bail reform now. We actually needed it months ago. And, you know, I'm concerned for people who are just trying to get to work, who are taking the LRT to get to their job, and they are literally getting stabbed on their way to work. And what we're seeing here with this specific case of this Edmonton man is just so disgusting. This is an individual who stabbed his pregnant wife. I believe he stabbed her. I'm actually not sure how he killed her, but he killed his pregnant wife. He's convicted of that murder. And now he's being let out on full parole. And I even read a story from a couple of years ago when he was initially first being granted some day parole for a couple months at a time that he was actually engaged. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so what are we supposed to be happy for him? Cause I I'm not, I don't think he should have been given a second chance. He should be behind bars for the rest of his days. He killed his wife and he also killed the unborn child in his wife's womb. So it's just some very disturbing trends that we're seeing. You know, we are failing victims and victims families and we're putting perpetrators and criminals on a pedestal instead and we're giving them second chances after they've taken lives of innocent people and i think this is the sign of a failing nation there's no way that canada continue in the direction that it's currently going because our streets are no longer safe for people we have businesses that don't even want to open in edmonton because it's so unsafe because of the unrest that we're seeing there and this is just going to continue to spell problems for our major cities people don't want to live in them anymore they can't afford to live in them anymore and they also don't want to have to take public transit and worry about being stabbed. So something drastically needs to change here. We know this is something our liberal government is not taking seriously. And, you know, when we talk about the story of this man who killed his pregnant wife, the liberal government just voted down a bill that would have granted further protection to pregnant women by for individuals that are assaulting pregnant women, basically acknowledging that in the ruling and giving them a harsher sentence and considering it, I guess, as aggravated assault. But, you know, of course, the liberal government wasn't interested in that because they don't want to give any rights or any protections to fetus because that would sort of open up the abortion debate in their mind. So there's some really worrying trends that we're seeing on criminal activity in Canada right now. I know that Danielle Smith has signaled that her government plans to take action on it. I think they want to put ankle monitors on repeat offenders and hire more police officers to monitor them and to parole them. It's going to cost a lot of money. But if there's anything the government should be doing, it should be ensuring the protection of their citizens on the streets at a basic level. And if they can't do that, then I don't know what we're paying taxes for. Right. And one encouraging sign uh, is uh, is that there's been a huge uproar, national uproar, about the 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 movement of uh, the notorious serial killer Paul Bernardo to a medium security prison. And of course, uh, you know it's encouraging that Canadians are getting very upset about that. For those who are interested, there's a very fascinating documentary that you've probably seen, Rachel, uh, from Aaron Gunn called Is Canada Dying? And in that documentary, you, you mentioned Danielle Smith, uh, it showcases and it, it, well, I should say it, 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 it explains about Alberta's approach to dealing with addictions, which of course are closely linked to, to crime. And, Alberta, and how Alberta is going in a totally different direction than places like uh, BC and Ontario in that uh, they're constructing these uh, these addiction centers, these these treatment centers, uh, which will be free to any Albertan. The first one, I believe, is set to open in Red Deer. Um, so that that is certainly a good sign, a, a promising sign in terms of reducing crime, because unfortunately, a lot of the people who live on the street and get caught up in crime are, are doing that because they, they have an underlying addiction or something of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. I've written extensively about the Alberta government's efforts on the addiction crisis that's being headed up by Marshall Smith. He is chief of staff to Premier Daniel Smith. Marshall was an addict on the streets of Vancouver for four years. So he really has a lot of firsthand experience of what the issue is and what needs to be done to solve it. And he under first under Jason Kenney, now they're continuing this work under Danielle Smith to open up these addiction centers. There's going to be maybe 10 or 12 of them that they're building all together in the province. I can't remember the exact amount. I believe that first recovery community, that's what they're called, is already open. That's in North Red Deer. So the government is really trying to open up these recovery centers across the province. They're prioritizing treatment over safe supply. 
you know, it's interesting. I think we're already seeing some good signs in the numbers, but in four years, I think we'll know a lot more as to whether our approach is working or whether Vancouver's approach is working. It is a little bit concerning that the rest of Canada is not following suit and taking these steps as well. You know, in Ontario, as we mentioned earlier, I grew up in Niagara. My family now lives in St. Catharines. And when I'm home visiting, there's a huge addiction crisis. There's tent cities everywhere. There's homeless people all over the streets. It just wasn't that way growing up. And we're also seeing an uptick in crime. And I do worry a little bit about it for people that still live there. You know, how is this going to get any better unless the government starts to take treatment seriously? And we're just not seeing that elsewhere in Canada right now. So hopefully Alberta's model will be successful and we can sort of tout that to the rest of Canada as a, su a successful approach and a way to proceed going forward. Right. So um, the last thing I want to ask you about before we turn to our reading list is uh, is your podcast. It's called the Alberta Roundup. And the description here is that uh, each week you keep us informed on the latest in Alberta news and politics, including what's happening in the leadership race, uh, which of course is now over. The Alberta Roundup will feature analysis and commentary from the heart of the West. And this happens every Saturday. So uh, what was the genesis of the, of the podcast? How did you get started and how's that going? So when I started at True North, I just kind of pitched it as an idea. I think I'd always wanted to get a little bit more into some of the podcasting and video space. And they were all game. We have a lot of success at True North with our video work. Yes, and so and so we started it. And you know, initially it was it was okay, but I got better as a host as time went on. I think that's what my viewers tell me. <laughs> and I actually I really enjoy it. So it's 10 to 15 minutes, and it's just a really brief recap of all the main stories coming out of the province each week. I find that my viewers love it because a lot of them don't maybe stay focused on what's going on throughout the week. They also don't want to watch like an hour long podcast so they can get all the breaking headlines and the best of the news just in this brief uh, video format. And it's also a different medium to work in. And I find that you have a better relationship with your viewers. You know, when I write a story, it's very rare that someone will take the time to email me a response to the story, but underneath the podcast, People will comment and they'll say what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, what they thought I missed. And it's also a place where we were talking a little bit about some of the degeneration that we see online. I haven't seen that feed into my podcast. People are actually very respectful. And even if they have a concern or criticism, they deliver that to me in a very mature way that makes me read the criticism and, uh, you know, kind of think about it as opposed to just being like, oh, well. I'm not going to pay attention to this. This is just online hate. No, they present it to me in a way that actually kind of makes me think, you know, do they have a point here? Is this something that I agree with? Is this something I should think about further? So I really enjoy doing it and the audience seems to love it. So definitely something we're going to continue with going forward and always excited to grow it a little bit more. We're going to turn to our reading list now. And uh, these selections uh, are probably going to be familiar to you uh, because uh, they are True North uh, productions. Uh, one of them is, is a great book that I read uh, recently called Losing True North, Justin Trudeau's Assault on Canadian Citizenship. And this is uh, uh, written by Candace Malcolm, who I know you know very well. I believe she's the founder of True North. And uh, this book um, essentially talks about um, uh, how, how, how Trudeau is granting Canadian citizenship, citizenship to people like convicted terrorists. And he's scrapping the language test for many citizenship applicants and and uh and and Ms. Malcolm puts forward compelling evidence that the prime minister is undermining Canadian values and doing it for one simple reason that is so his liberal party can win favor with special interest groups and add to its voting coalition time for uh upcoming elections 
so and that these radical changes in our immigration system uh, are causing a sacrifice of Canadian traditions and advantages. He's putting our economy, our national security, and our way of life at risk. Uh, another book, uh, the second book I have here, also written by Candace Malcolm, is called Generation Screwed. And I believe uh, she might be talking about your generation, Rachel, uh, or, or at least some members of it. Uh, here she says, in, in Canada, our government funding requires robbing Peter to pay Paul. But what happens when Peter retires? Uh, this question is, is examined by Candace, who discusses the many problems facing young Canadians. Thanks to the big promises made by politicians over time, our government lives beyond its means. Amen. Uh, doesn't pay its bills and forces young workers to pay for the lucrative benefits of older ones, benefits that won't exist for the next generation. So Generation Screwed is this is a manifesto that teaches young Canadians how to fight back against the Ponzi scheme set up by their government. The uh, the third book is by Anthony Fury. Re really enjoy his, uh, his, uh, his work. Uh, but he wrote a book called Pulse Attack, the real story behind the secret weapon that can destroy North America. Uh, he says, North America is vulnerable to a catastrophic attack that will spell the end of life as we know it. An electromagnetic pulse launched from the atmosphere will shut down the electricity grid and dismantle appliances, water systems, food distribution for weeks, months, or even years. And this sounds uh, like a conspiracy theory, but when you read the book, you find out that veteran CIA agents, trailblazing astronomers, physics professors and maverick politicians are just some of the cast of, cast of characters in the book who shed light upon one of the most worrisome dangers of the modern age that was only recently declassified. So uh, th this, is a, this is a book especially uh, for those people who are interested in science, but uh, I, I suggest that uh, it certainly explains some of the uh, controversy around things like 5G. Anyway, those are our selections. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, let you have the last word. Are there any any books or or websites or things of that nature that you would recommend to people that would maybe enhance their understanding of some of the topics that you write about and that we've been talking about today? Sure. Uh, I don't have the exact recaps right in front of me, so I'll do my best to do all these books justice. But since you mentioned a couple of True North books there, I'd also, of course, recommend my colleague Andrew Lawton's book on the Freedom Convoy. Yes. Great you book. know, a great book. Uh, he did such an excellent job on just really summarizing what had happened. For anyone that hasn't already read it, you should definitely grab a copy. Andrew's such an excellent writer, and it's really interesting and just a great read. One of the first books that I ever read when I moved to Alberta was King Ralph. Um, oh, yeah. That's by uh, Don Martin, who is, I think, retired now, but he was a journalist. I worked with him up in Ottawa for a bit as well. Mm -hmm. Such a great book. It was really a crash course on Alberta politics for me, obviously focusing on former Premier Ralph Klein and just how successful he was. And it was just, it was honestly, it's a very entertaining book again. And I think it's really enlightened my view of Alberta politics and helped to inform some of my coverage and just to better understand even the people here. So if you live in Alberta or if you don't, definitely read that book. It's just, it's very entertaining and very informative and you'll probably have a little bit of some informative nuggets that you can use in conversation to really show off your knowledge of Alberta history and then the third and final book that I'm going to recommend is called Live Not by Lies the subtitle oh, is a manual for Christian dissidents but that's by Rob Dreher I might be mispronouncing his last name this book really changed my life I was still working in the mainstream media when I read it and I actually just spoke about it on a podcast a little while ago. This is such a great book. I think it will really challenge you on 
how you speak to members of your society and how you really reckon with the lies that we're seeing with in all areas of life. And it basically makes the argument that the woke ideology that we're seeing so prevalent in our societies nowadays is really just a modern day Marxism. And it gives you some really practical tools as to how you can fight back against that. So I would absolutely recommend that for everyone that I know. I think it'll really challenge you. And I think that it has the potential to change your life. Those are all really great uh, selections. Two of those books are actually already on our, our reading list. Um, the, the, the Roger Ayer book, I totally agree with you. Really, really great uh, read. And uh, I understand that uh, he's just about to release a new book. I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, Live Not By Lies is just a brilliant uh, piece, especially uh, talking about changing how people approach information, especially information that is publicly disseminated uh, and asking questions like, why am I seeing this? You know, and what does it mean? And who is saying it? Uh, so yeah, thanks for those selections. We're so grateful to have you, have had you on the show here. Um, I really enjoyed your work and uh, really am a supporter of of everything that is done at True North. Uh, I think uh, Candace Malcolm is a really courageous journalist and I really like Andrew Lawton and Anthony Fury. I think you're all doing just incredible work and really important work for Canadians. I have to say, especially during the pandemic when it was so hard to find anything that was true or reliable in news, uh, you know, True North was really a, a beacon of light. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Wish you much continued success with your journalism and also with your podcast. So thanks very much for being our special guest today uh, on Grey Matter, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. 